Good morning. The submarine had surfaced earlier that day, and our watchkeeping routine was therefore greatly reduced. It was two in the morning, and for the first time in ten and a half weeks, the six-berth cabin where I slept was full. And that's when the general alarm went off, which sounded something like this. Fire, fire, fire. Fire in three Foxtrot Alpha One. Attack party muster at the scene of the fire. Support party muster at section base one. Fire, fire, fire. And so on. You, as you can imagine, you can't sleep through that. Almost before we were awake, there were six of us leaping to our feet, trying to get our clothes on, in a space about the size of the table that you have between four seats on a train. That picture up there of this birth compartment, it actually comes from the Vanguard class submarines. That's probably giving you about twice as much floor space as we had to get six of us in it. As you can imagine, as we tried to get dressed without elbowing people, it was chaos. But the alarm was a call to action that we couldn't ignore. And even though it eventually turned out to be a false alarm, one of those cases where there was really smoke without fire, we had to respond. Any fire at sea, especially in a submarine, is a lethal hazard. Not just from the effects of the flame and the smoke, because it draws oxygen from the atmosphere and replaces it with carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and potentially lethal fumes from whatever happened to be burning. So both from as a result of our training and the real threat to that, our lives that night, we responded to the call. But how do we react to other circumstances that deserve action? Things that could be considered a call to action. Don't our doesn't our response depend on how clearly we see the threat? And sometimes, perhaps too often, on what we perceive as our best interests and bother everyone else. If we consider climate change as an example, the general lack of really effective action by political leaders across the world must be partly because they're just not seeing the threat clearly. And that's despite the various scientific groups and the sensible lobby groups that are trying to make the threat clear. But isn't the other side that they're looking at the likely effect on their vote if they take action, an action that could potentially have an adverse impact on the public? Well, over the last six weeks, as we've gone through the various topics covered in the Christianity Explored course, we've looked at who Jesus was and the reason he came into the world. We've looked at why he died and why he was raised from the dead. And we've looked at the way Jesus' death and resurrection have opened a way for us to get ourselves right with God, to have the sin that we all carry dealt with, forgiven and forgotten. And we've also seen the good news that this forgiveness is available to us all without having to earn it. 
that it's a gift that God offers us in his grace. Well, today is the last in this series, and we're looking at how we respond to all the evidence that we've seen so far. One thing I will say right at the start, we do need to respond. Some people would like to think that God, because he's merciful and loves us, won't send anyone to hell. But that isn't what Jesus told us. He was very clear that not everyone is going to heaven. In Matthew 2, 25 to 30, 31 to 46, he described the judgment of the nations like this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then he'll say to those on his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. And the apostles talk about the coming judgment too. John describes it in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Also another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that was in it. Death and Hades gave up the death that were in them. And all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, in some ways, I hope I haven't burst anyone's bubble. In other ways, actually, I hope I have with this. But we need to be very clear. There is a coming judgment when we will each be judged on our deeds if we have not accepted Jesus. So how bad have we been? After all, Lots of us would look at ourselves and say, we're actually okay, we're not murderers, we're not adulterers, we're not thieves. But imagine that you've lived your life so well that you've only sinned just three times a day. That's three things you said, thought, or did something wrong. Or three times that you didn't do or say something you know you should have done. How good would your life be? Well, by human standards, most people would say, really, really good. 
Because I think if we're all honest and look at ourselves honestly, don't we all fail more than three times a day? But think what it means. Three sins a day is 21 sins a week. And when you add it up, it's over a thousand sins a year. So if you multiply by that age, that's probably a big number. Certainly is for some of us more than others, I know. But just think, if you ended up in a court in front of a judge on a charge and you had to say, could you please take into account 60-odd thousand other cases, how lenient do you think he would be? And that's living a really good life. So our sins, no matter how good the life we think we may have lived, mean we've all fallen far short of God's standards. We've earned ourselves God's judgment. And as Romans 6.23 says, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We need God's forgiveness. Otherwise, we are doomed. But believing in God, i.e. that he exists, isn't enough. Not even believing that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That alone can't save you. James made this very clear in James 2.19. He said, you believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons do that, and they shudder. The demons believe God exists, but it does them no good. So what do we do, need to do to go beyond what the demons believe? Well, firstly, we need to recognize that we've fallen short of God's standards. Not we in general, but actually us as individuals. That I have fallen short of God's standards. That you have fallen God sh short of God's standards. That we've ignored his commands and done what we want to do instead that we have, in effect, put ourselves in God's place. Jesus said the most important commandment was this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Think about how you felt about someone in the very early stages of being in love. Didn't you want to spend all your time with them? Didn't essentials like work or school get in the way of what you really wanted to do to be with that other person? Didn't that other person keep coming into your mind whatever else you were doing? Well, that's something of what Jesus is saying our relationship with God should be like. The key word in that commandment is all. All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our minds, and all of our strength. This doesn't leave anything of us out. Our whole being is supposed to be focused on God. That's the sort of relationship that he, to, with him that he made us to have. But we haven't lived up to this. We've put ourselves first, done what we wanted, and ignored God's instructions on how we should be living. And that's reflected in Jesus' statement of the second most important commandment, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Think about relationships. 
How many relationships with other people have been wrecked because one or both of the people involved in it have put what they wanted above the other one? And it's not just interpersonal. We can say the, see the same issue in all forms of relationships. At the moment, industrial relations are high on the agenda. The business owners want to maximize their profits, sometimes against the needs of their workers or their customers. And it feels like the workers sometimes do it, do take the same attitude. In politics, in politics, isn't it what works to get me votes is more important, perhaps, than the overall good of the, for the people of the country? And on a more personal nature, in our demand for limited resources, where I'll take and use the oil, the water, the minerals, the food to satisfy my needs. And I don't worry about the resultant pollution, the exploitation of people in other countries, the consequences of my greed. And in international relations, where what I want takes priority, what overrides any idea of a common good or any win-win type solution. The invasion of the Ukraine is a clear example of this. But in case we feel smoke because we're in the UK and we're not invading anybody, what about the way that we do international aid, where aid is given to countries not purely based on their need, but also on what they can do for us in terms of trade or other favours back? Having recognised our failures, we need to want to do better to repent of the way we've been living, to turn away from that way of living and turn towards God and the way he wants us to live. Now, I doubt any of us think that would be easy, but that is what we need to do. Jesus talked about his disciples having to take up his cross and follow, them, follow him. He called his crowd with the disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, followers let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, Jesus was referring to more than just repentance in that statement. But the call is clear. Deny ourselves. Turn away from what we want and our old way of life to follow him. But we easily miss the shock that this would have given to Jesus' listeners. They may well in their day have seen procession of a condemned man or condemned person carrying their cross being paraded to the execution site where they were going to be killed they may have seen the excruciating suffering and shame of a crucified man or woman they would have been clear that Jesus was stating that we should be prepared to deny ourselves to follow him even if it meant literally death and even today following Jesus in many places in this world, can still result in being killed for your faith. There's a real cost to following Jesus, a cost to accepting his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. But if we're prepared to accept that, the benefit we get is far beyond what we can imagine. Jesus contrasted gaining the whole world against our lives in Mark 8, 35-37. Those who want to save their life will lose it, but those who will lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. What will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? 
So if, having counted the cost, we still want that salvation that Jesus brought for it and the benefits that come with it, we need to accept it. We need to ask God for it and for the strength to make good our intention to turn away from our old way of life and to let God start to change us to make us more like Jesus. And this is the start of a lifetime's adventure of following Jesus. The work that God does in us won't be completed until everything is made perfect at the end of time. In the meantime, though there will be changes in us, most people still struggle with their old habits and sin. Even Paul struggled with sin in Romans 7, 15 to 17. He said, I don't understand my own actions, but what I do not do, or I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. But now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Despite our struggles, however, the reality is that our old nature, the corrupted nature that results from sin, is dead even if we all too often feel it's not lying down yet. In Romans 8, 6, and 7, Paul said, We know our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is free from sin. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we've been rescued from hell. We've been freed from sin's clutches but we all find ourselves all e too easily falling back into our old sinful habits. And we can only beat this by daily taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and walking close to Jesus. By spending dedicated time with him each day, reading his words, spending time in prayer with him. One thing is certain, however, if we have believed Jesus died to save us from our sins, if we've accepted the gift of forgiveness he's offered us, we cannot carry on living as we've always lived. In Romans 6, 2 and 4, Paul wrote, How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead to, by glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, to be clear, we don't try to live differently to earn our way into heaven. We can't do that. God has already given us entry to heaven as, the, as a gift when we accepted Jesus as our Lord. But our new way of living should be the result of the changes that God has made in us through his Holy Spirit. Our new way of living should be reflecting our faith. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. This is to the disciples, that you should love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also should love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And James developed it in chapter 2 of his letter, arguing unless our faith shows itself in the good works that we do, it isn't real. He said, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked or lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you don't supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. 
And Paul makes the point that we were made to do good works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 10, 8 to 10. But by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not the result of work so that no one can boast. For we are what he made us. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So in summary then, what we've seen over the last six weeks leaves us with a call to action. And it's a very clear call. If we have our ears open to hear it. But isn't the more important question, not will we hear the alarm, but when the alarm sounds, will we respond? For those of us who love and trust in Jesus, the call is to prepare for battle. Hands to action stations, hands to action stations. Assume NBCD, state one, condition Zulu. Hands to action stations, hands to action stations. Sorry, using all the naval examples. But we're called to get ready to prepare for battle, a spiritual battle. A battle to reach all those in our world who are perishing through their sin. And if we don't equip ourselves, if we don't put on God's armor from Ephesians 6.13 and take up the sword of the Spirit to take our place in the battle line, then who will? Paul said, you know, put on the full armor of God so you can stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand firm the belt of truth buckled round your waist, the breastplate of righteousness, with the shoes fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the work of God. And if we don't do that, if we don't take our place in the line, if we don't play our part in proclaiming Jesus by showing his love to people, who will? And then for those of us who don't yet know Jesus, who haven't placed their trust in him, the action call that comes is a call to save yourself from the emergency you have. And we've heard this one before. Fire, fire, fire. Fire in three, Foxtrot Alpha One. Attack party muster at the scene of the fire. Support party muster at section base one. Fire. So if you don't know Jesus yet, and you've heard his call, you need to respond. And let me say this, you cannot not respond. Ignoring God's call doesn't make the reality go away. Putting it off, not making a choice, is rejecting Jesus' offer. And though you may think you've got plenty of time, you may not get another chance. When I was in my uh, university, I was part of a band in a, uh, at the church I went to, and one of our songs had a verse that went like this. Folks said they would repent at the 11th hour. They reckon without God's plan. 
It was 10.30 when they went. We don't know how long we've got. Don't put off the opportunity that God gives you. Your eternal future depends on how you react. Accept the gift that Jesus is offering you through his grace. Accept the forgiveness of your sins and the eternal life that starts now, potentially today. So whichever group you belong to, whether you're a Christian or you're not yet a believer, you need to open your ears to hear God's call to you and take action.